everyone. Welcome back to Reflect Forward. I'm your host, Carrie Siggins, and I'm so happy you're here today. Spring is in the air. It is warming up here in Colorado, which is scary because we need more snow, but I am also very happy for a little bit warmer temperatures. I'm not typically a big spring fan because in Colorado, spring means not warm enough weather to put on shorts, but warm enough weather, weather to start to melt the snow and cause muddy trails. So it's hard to get outside and it's also really windy. Typically I'm like, oh, I can't wait for spring to get over. But I am so happy it's here because the warmer weather and the birds chirping, oh, it just makes me feel like there's hope. <laughs> and I know that there is, but something about a, a new season this year is incredibly profound. So I hope you're as excited as I am for spring. All right, I want to tee up my guest today, Paul Reese. Paul is the Director of Professional Services at Financial Force, which is a consulting company. And he's also a good friend of mine. I've known Paul since 2005, and I attribute so much of my personal and professional growth to him. We work together in my darkest moments, and he introduced me to the Myers-Briggs Personality Assessment and the Strengths Finder books by the Gallup uh, organization, and they were profound. They helped me understand myself so much better so that I could dig deep into why I made some of the decisions that I made, especially some of those not so great decisions. And it set my life on a new course. Paul has a fascinating story. So he moved around as a kid all the time. He was in eight different schools in his first eight years of life. And he was incredibly shy and a deep introvert, and he was sick as a kid all the time. But he was also a daredevil and pushed himself. He took drama classes and music classes and got on stage, even though it was not easy for him. He had to create a persona. He uh, entered his professional career and skyrocketed and owned his own consulting company, and it was unbelievably successful and he completely crashed and burned total burnout and he had to choose his marriage and his life over his business which was an incredibly hard thing for him to do i think that you will resonate with his story so much because i know that all of us leaders can i don't know take for granted our health the health of our families the health of our relationships our, our own personal health at the expense of success and growing a business. And Paul shares his story, how he now loves his life and he's found more balance, but he had to leave behind that business to make a positive impact in his life and then a positive impact in every person he meets. So I hope you enjoy this interview. He is a profound person. You will gain so many insights. I adore him and I'm so happy to have gotten to reconnect with him during this interview. So hang tight and I'll be right back with Paul. All right, welcome back everybody. I'm so happy to have my very good friend, Paul Reese here. We have not connected. We were just talking in the pre-show for, gosh, probably 15 years in person. So it's going to be so much fun to interview you. So thanks for being on the show today, Paul. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So you had a really interesting childhood. So I would like to have you tell us a little bit about that and then talk about how you have matured in your leadership style and parenting style, just in being an adult in general. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, one, one thing about my childhood that I think was a little unique is I went to eight schools in my first eight years of school. So every year I was starting over. I was always the new kid and I'm an introvert. I always have been, but I had to learn at an early age to how to make friends, how to inject yourself into the social circle. And while it's not my natural state, it was kind of forced on me, right? Because otherwise I would just be an outcast the whole time. So the other interesting thing about my childhood is I was very, very sick all the time. I had asthma and it was uh, a pretty bad case. So I was in the hospital a lot. I spent at least one of each holiday in the hospital and a couple of birthdays in the hospital. There were hospital regulars that I would see. I would go back and say hi to my old hospital friends. And I was on a whole bunch of medication that kind of made me shake because at the time the medication wasn't that great and it kind of messed me up. But when I wasn't sick, I was, first of all, really underweight because I couldn't exercise a lot and the medicine sort of jacked up my metabolism. So I was very, very skinny, kind of frail, but that did not stop me from being a bit of a, a daredevil. So I was always riding my bike with my friends and my sister. And if somebody said, you know, a jump couldn't be made or something couldn't be done. I just took that personally and said, I bet I can do it. And in the process, I would end up hurting myself a lot, but eventually kind of proving I could. So I had this weird dichotomy of being both really sick and also kind of a daredevil. And do you think like looking back, it's always easy, of course, to analyze those behaviors when you're an adult, but do you think that part of it was trying to compensate for being sick? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, my nature was I was always trying to compensate for people around me. So when I would be sick, for example, my mom would get really worried in the hospital, sitting next to me, just watching me hooked up to breathing machines. And I would see the look on her face. And so I would try to cheer her up by cracking jokes. And then comedy kind of became my way of you know, cheering people up who were depressed or I, I've always sort of, you know, been really in tune with the people around me, how they're feeling, what they're thinking. And I'm a bit of a people pleaser just by nature. And so I always look for what I can do to tune into that and connect with them. And in some cases, accommodate or compensate. Just to kind of add to that, I think in my career, that was more true early on when I was young right, just starting out where I kind of felt it was my role to be responsible for everybody else's satisfaction, morale, performance. Like I was always trying to kind of compensate for everyone else. And that early on, that led me down kind of a bad path. Ultimately, you can't do that. And it would get me frustrated constantly at, you know, why can't, why can't I control the situation? Why can't I fix all of the problems, right? So that's something I've had to unlearn a little bit. And so how have you gone about unlearning that? Because that need for compensating, the need for control is, is something that runs deep. <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. I had to learn by just practicing. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think the first time I practiced was when you and I worked together back in 2006. We had a mutual colleague who you know, I had a problem with and up to that point, I had never actually confronted a person really directly, really firmly, and just said exactly what I think without sugarcoating it. 
And if I'm not mistaken, I think you are the person who encouraged me to do that. And I was nervous. I did it poorly, but I did it. And I just said what I had to say. And just getting kind of that first breakthrough and realizing that life didn't end after that gave me the courage to practice again and practice again. And, and I think practicing just speaking directly without trying to control how it's perceived builds up a skill. And I think I've gotten to the point now where that skill has become, okay, now I can let go of the need to control and I can just say what I mean. Yeah. I could not agree with you more. I actually just posted a video on social media about just saying what needs to be said. And so many people are afraid of it, whatever the reason is that they think oh, I'm doing it to protect another person or protect myself. I'm afraid of the outcome. And so we actually wind up making things so much worse in the long run. We think that we're doing all these things because it would be selfish if we just said what we thought or it would be hurtful. And we actually wind up making a bigger mess of it. It's such a powerful lesson to learn the power of saying what you think. And it doesn't mean that it absolves you of the responsibility of considering how you say it and thinking about the outcomes that you want. But I always tell people, just say it. That's way better than not saying it. Yeah, I I ended up teaching my daughter this lesson because when she was a teenager, she would inevitably have conflicts with her teenage girlfriends, right? Like that's just a normal part of being a girl and being a teenager. And she struggled with the same thing. So I'm assuming she got it from me and she had a hard time confronting people. And what I ended up telling her was any difficult conversation, you have an obligation to be honest and kind. And you have to test yourself and think, am I being honest? And also, am I being kind? And if you're only being one, you're not handling it right. Right. So so there's always a way to do both. But I think I was always erring on the side of just being kind and not being honest. Yeah, yeah. that reminds me of Kim Scott's book, Radical Candor. She has the four quadrant model that, that talks about what is being radically candid and that is being direct, but doing it because I care deeply about you and our relationship. And, and I constantly am trying to live in that radical candor place, which is exhausting sometimes, but it's so important. As soon as you fall over to that, oh, I just, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm too amiable. I don't want to be direct. What does she call it? Ruinous empathy. Uh, we just wind up getting ourselves in trouble. So it's really cool that you're teaching your daughter that at a young age. Yeah. And I think as a, as a leader, you know, where that made me struggle was in coaching people, right? So when people who reported to me would not do something that they were expected to do, Previously, like earlier in my management career, I had a really hard time saying, hey, you didn't do your job and that's not acceptable. And part of what I struggled with was just phrasing, right? It was just, I didn't know how to say it without it feeling somehow morally too confrontational. And so I ended up kind of learning some phrases that allowed me to feel comfortable that I'm both being honest without making it personal, right? And insulting. And so I learned things like you missed the mark here. And that was a really helpful one for me. Whenever I need to confront somebody and say, hey, you didn't do your job right. I don't want to say it like that, but I do want to say you missed the mark. It's a really you know good go-to for me. And then I've sort of picked up these phrases 
So for anybody who's super agreeable and has a hard time saying that, find some phrases and practice them. And that's really helped me. Yeah, one of the advice I give to people who are come to me for, I don't know, help with how do I how do I share my feelings about something without messing up what I'm saying or offending the person. And one of the the phrases that I suggest is, this is what I'm experiencing. It's hard to argue with somebody's experience. You can argue with somebody say, well, I think that you're doing this or I feel, well, you shouldn't feel that way. But when you say, this is how I'm experiencing it, it really breaks down that barrier. It makes it easier then to say how you're feeling about something without the emotionally charged words that come with uh, other approaches to talking about emotional uh, topics. So I, th- I totally agree with you. I think finding those phrases that work for you that make it easier to get the words out is really important. Yep, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about being an introvert. So it's interesting that you were an introvert, but were forced into these situations to be more extroverted as a child. And then I know that you were an actor and a musician uh, before you like grew up into an adult and had to actually go to work <laughs> for a living. Uh, talk, let's talk a little bit about what that was like and the impact of being an introvert and being forced in the, those types of situations to have to have the attention on you. Yeah, so you mentioned I, I was an actor and musician and I certainly wasn't professional, but that was my dream to become so in life until really my mid-20s. and. For me, acting and music was an escape. So as an introvert, I actually found it a perfect fit because as an actor, you can escape from yourself and be somebody else. And that wasn't scary as an introvert. Uh, And same with music. It was about the art and the performance, not about me, the person. And so for me, I think of my introversion as kind of a fear of being known and a fear of exposing myself, my true self, right? And so I find these ways to protect myself. Uh, And and those were great escapes. But once I started transitioning into the business world, which is another interesting story, I found that introversion just made me exhausted. Because when you show up for work, there is no escape. You got to do the work. And I started my career as a recruiter, which means you're talking to people all day, which is more exhausting. So the fact that I had to do things that other people wanted me to do and I had to talk to people, I would end my days just absolutely exhausted. And I didn't do I didn't deal with it well for a really long time. I just was unhappy for a long time. And that unhappiness led me to to consider I can't be the only introvert who thinks that working is exhausting. It's not that I was bad at my job. I just thought there has to be a way to work that doing something that's actually energizing. So at the end of the day, you feel good about your work rather than exhausted and needing a break. And that ultimately led me to understanding more about personality type theory, Myers-Briggs, that's something you and I talked about a lot back in the day. And then also the book Strengths Finder. There's a whole series of books from Gallup on that. And that really helped me understand that I'm not actually broken just because I end my day tired but that there are there are better fits for me professionally where I can end my day feeling energized rather than exhausted. Yeah. So I have to tell you that knowing you in the years of the 20s were so powerful for me. 
And that's because I kind of really know myself. And you introduced me to Myers-Briggs. And I remember first taking the assessment and then reading what ENFP was going like, oh my God, that's why I do what I do. And having these like, profound <laughs> realizations. And I was so grateful for that because it set me on this path of, of really examining myself and especially in my darkest moments, it was really helpful. And I've taken it further um, in particular with the Enneagram. And uh, so I'm really grateful that you, you taught me that because I can understand a lot more about where those energies come from and not necessarily understanding it before, right? That why am I so tired at the end of the day? Why am I having to sit here and put in a bunch of data? This is awful. I hate it. So it was, it was a really profound, it was a really profound time in my life sitting there and having those philosophical conversations with you about, about why we do the things that we do and our, our drives and our personalities. Yeah, I, it was the same for me too. I mean, that was a big turning point for me, just trying to understand myself. And the conflict that I had, apart from feeling tired at the end of the day, I also had this really strange contradiction I couldn't understand for the longest time, which was on one hand, I, I was really good at certain types of things. Like I've always been pretty smart, a pretty fast learner, pretty creative. Like I had my strengths. But then it seemed like tasks that should have been much easier were actually much harder for me. Things that were a breeze for other people were almost impossible for me. Just things like staying organized, for example, just things like going through a task list, things like picking up the phone and calling somebody, things that I couldn't understand. How can I do really well in one area and struggle in areas that should be easier, or at least I thought they should be easier? And, and what I understood is it's not about hard or easy, it's just about different. And once I understood, okay, my strengths are valid, they can be applicable in the workplace, and my weaknesses are also just as valid, I need to look for a career path that takes me further away from my weaknesses and allows me to spend more of my day on the things that I do best. So that's kind of when it started, was, was back then in 2006, I think. Well, and then the, the, the whole strengths finder, my entire management principle has been founded on the first break all the rules, right? With the, the Gallup organization and Marcus Buckingham. I really attribute that to you too. Every manager at Stone Age is required to read that book. <laughs> That's great. And it is, it's such a, that, and then with the strengths finder and understanding personality assessments, the variety that you can use in the workplace are so incredibly helpful to making sure that you get the right people in the right seats on the bus. Yeah, yeah, and I think that book in particular, First Break All the Rules, was the one that made it really click for me. Yeah. And then there was a follow-up to that, which is, I think, now put your strengths to work, yep. something like that, or maybe it was the third book. And I did the workbook on that. It's, it's a practical guide to how do you identify throughout your day the things that make you feel energized and the things that make you feel weak. And I did that. I wrote it down and I followed it with some discipline. And it was right around that time I started getting promotions really, really quickly. And that's when my career, I would say, started progressing in a way that actually started feeling fun instead of a drudge. 
Yeah. So I want to talk about that because you have an interesting story of reaching that pinnacle and then crashing hard uh, and then yes. rebuilding again. So let's talk about how the promotions built and how you started to really get into your groove and maybe how you lost some of yourself along the way through that journey. So can you share your story? Yeah, sure. So it was right around that time, like we just said, in 2006, I started getting ambitious career-wise. I was a recruiter and I, once I realized I could be doing more and doing better, it became a bit of an obsession. So I was reading a lot. I was working really hard. I was focused on myself and my own career advancement. Part of that drive was the fact that I didn't have a college degree. And in the technology world that I work in, that's a that's a big problem. It's less of a problem now, but back then it was it was really hard. So I felt like I needed to work a lot harder than everybody else to justify being there. So I was ultimately promoted up to director of operations at a company in Austin, Texas. And after doing that for a few years, I decided I wanted to make the leap into consulting. And so uh, I had an opportunity and I jumped and I, and I got it. I thought, I don't know if I can do it, but it's the next thing and it's new and I haven't done it before. And that was kind of my focus. I want to do as many new things as possible, whether they're for the better, I, I wouldn't know, but I just wanted to do new things. I was only consulting for five years and by the way, I wasn't very good. I'll just say that because I didn't have background. I didn't have a strong mentor who was spending a lot of time with me and teaching me how to do it. So I learned by discovering all of the ways that you can do things wrong. That's how, <laughs> that's how I learned to be a good consultant. I nearly lost my job a couple of times. It was pretty spectacularly bad. But eventually I found my footing and I really liked it. And it was around, I, I would say five years into consulting, I felt that I had reached my limit with the company I worked at and I was looking for the next step. And I was working with a colleague and we said, let's just, let's start our own thing. So we started our own company with no outside funding. I have two kids, I have a wife who doesn't work and I didn't have a lot in savings. And we just said, we believe in ourselves, we can do it and we, just went out there, no customers, nothing. And so that company was called VFP Consulting and they're still doing great today. But that was another turning point in my life because now suddenly I'm a relatively inexperienced consultant who I feel like I had just hit my stride and just figured out how to do things right at that point. And now I've got staff that I'm hiring, I'm responsible for payroll, I'm doing 12 different jobs every day. I was billing as a consultant myself. It was a lot to juggle. And the only way that I could do it well was to give it everything I had. So I started working really long days. I was traveling every week. And the problem that came from that over time was that initially the sacrifice seemed worth it. But over time, the, the payoff in my personal life just kept pushing back and back. And so my wife was really supportive. She said, this is great, we need to do this. But after a few years, she had her own issues, some health issues that were piling up. I had you know, people in my family that had cancer and some really tough things going on. And I just wasn't around. I was just an absentee husband and father. And you can do that for a little while, but 
I couldn't do it forever. And at one point I looked back and noticed I pushed away everything in my life that was important and I sacrificed it for this business. And on one hand, you could say it was worth it because the business was very successful and continues to be. But on the other hand, I hit a breaking point <clears throat> and I, I kind of had a, a breakdown. I just kind of lost it. It was like a guest you had recently, Andy Petranek. It was, it was kind of the same story where I thought I could handle it. And then one day I just couldn't handle it. And so what happened when you couldn't handle it? What did that feel like when you're going up, up, up? And did you, did it hit you out of the blue or were you aware that it was going to hit the breaking point? I, I was aware. Okay. I just didn't know when. Yeah. I knew it was unsustainable. I knew that I was different. I knew that I was grumpy a lot and that's not my normal nature. I was stressed out a lot. <clears throat> I was drinking a lot. I'm not normally a big drinker. I didn't actually start drinking until I was 30. And suddenly I found myself drinking really, really heavily every single day to kind of try to push down all the things that were piling up, not only with the company, even though it was going well, it was just a lot. And also, you know, with my personal life and health issues and things like that, alcohol was the thing that would get me to the next day. So I knew that that wasn't sustainable, but I also didn't see a way out because I felt trapped. I thought, well, I'm not going to leave my family on one hand. I'm not going to leave the business on the other hand. The only thing I can do is just keep going. And that felt really true in the moment. But what I didn't appreciate in the moment was at some point, something's going to break. Either my family's going to break or the company's going to break or I'm going to break. And it turned out to be me. And I, when I broke, it did feel sudden, even though I saw it coming. But like I said, I had kind of a mental breakdown. And looking back, I barely recognized myself. Even though it happened gradually, I, I sort of experienced it suddenly. And so how did you pull yourself out of it? Or are you still pulling yourself out of it? <laughs> I think I still am to some extent, but I, I, it's hard to say because I don't know, you know how far there is left to go. It's really hard to say that, but the way I did it is I, I ultimately decided I had to choose, that it was just unsustainable, and I chose my mental health, my sanity, and my family. And it was a shame that it had to come to that. I wish it hadn't, but, but that's just the way it was. And it was definitely the right decision to walk away, even though it was really hard. And I couldn't get a job for several months after that. I think the lack of degree certainly hurt me again. But I took that time when I was looking for my next job uh, to go through a lot of therapy and read a lot of books and really just work on myself and work on my family, my marriage, and the people in my extended family who had health issues and spending more time with them. So it was just back to the basics. I don't think there was a clear path. There wasn't like a prescriptive, here's how you heal. It just takes time and attention and making it a priority. So I think all those things combined have gotten me to the point where I, I feel like myself again. But there was a good stretch of time where I kind of didn't recognize myself. I, I, 
I didn't really trust myself. That so resonates with me. Mine happened like 10 years before you, uh, right when I knew you. And it, it was the exact same thing. I and mean, people ask me, how did you come from rock bottom and get to where you are now? Those first couple of years of recovery are such a blur. It has that feeling of like not recognizing myself, not a hundred percent if I'm going on the right path or what the outcome was. I had no idea what the outcome was, right? I just was like, I'm just going to throw myself into figuring out how to be a really good leader and a CEO. And some of this other stuff will be dealt with later, which, you know, yep. dragon rears its ugly head again. But I, I, it really does resonate with me that sometimes when you're in that moment, you just have to say, I'm taking the, the, a step and it might not be in the right direction, but at least it's a step out of this. And just keep doing that over and over again. So I learned a lot from that experience. I learned, I think first and foremost, that for me to just be okay as a human, that I had to put my humanity first. And for a long time, I put my career before my humanity. And, and that's not to say that while I was doing the work, I was an indecent person. That's not the case at all. I was, yeah, I'm really proud of the work I did there. And we built up a really strong team and I've got a lot of great relationships and, and people who respect me for the way I led the team at the time. And all that is good, but I was doing it at the expense of my own kind of mental health, my own family, my own priorities, my own kind of self-control with the alcohol. I was putting my career advancement before everything else. And I think one of the main things I should say realizations that helped me kind of heal was was just that, which is that's where things started going wrong is when I got so ambitious that I didn't just prioritize the business as number one and everything else two, three and four. It was like the business was number one through 10 and everything else was 11 through 100 if I ever got to it, which I rarely did. And so coming out of that, I'm at the point now where I'm prioritizing being a decent human first before anything else. And that's not just as it relates to my relationship with my family, but it's it's as it relates to my relationship with myself, right? Like self-care and what are the things that I need to do for myself to be mentally clear and healthy? You know, one of the things I'm doing is going back to my roots of enjoying acting and music and an old friend of mine uh, and I are doing some short films together. We just recorded a little scene over the weekend, not to put, not to be famous or build another career, but just to do it, right? And so putting those kinds of things first and making time for those things that I really love and that are part of who I am, that has made such a huge difference to feel, to feel grounded, to feel present. And it carries through into my work now. Right, because now I'm bringing a healthy person who's, who's clear, who's able to listen, who's able to live in the moment, who's able to respond appropriately. And I just don't think I was doing that as well before. So it sounds like to me that you are grateful for hitting rock bottom. Would that be an oh, accurate yeah. assessment? Yeah, it's the, it's the best and worst thing that ever happened to me it's a little bit like a rebirth. Like I had to die in a sense in order to recognize that I, that I needed to be reborn. 
not to get too metaphysical about it, but I really did need to kind of start a new life on a new path. And as much as I've done that before in kind of, you know, reinventing myself, being the new kid at school and going from artist to professional without a degree and having all these new starts, starting a new business without having done that kind of thing before. I've started over a lot, but I've never done it because I knew my life depended on it. And and in that way, it was different. It's like I had to be woken up and it took hitting rock bottom and not just hitting rock bottom, but being dragged across rock bottom for a while to realize, okay, I need to be a better human. It's such an inspiring story of resiliency, which is so poignant these days because there's not a person on the planet, well, maybe a few, but not many people on the planet who haven't had to have the the strength and resiliency to get through what we've been going through with this pandemic like what have you learned about resiliency through all of this well i've learned two things i think i've always considered myself a really resilient person because i've always been the person who can sort of take on the leftovers that the rest of the team doesn't feel like they can do that's been a real big part of my identity is if somebody says it can't be done you know, back to my daredevil days, it, it feels like somebody's daring me to figure it out and I'll just take it on. And that's also partly being a people pleaser too. It's like, that's okay, I'll do it. Don't worry about it. But it, that's that used to feel like resiliency to me is like, I can handle anything. But what I've learned is that for me, everybody has their limits. And I didn't understand that I had my limits I thought I had limitless resiliency. I thought I was the person who could compartmentalize things indefinitely, take the pressure, because I always had been able to before. And once I hit my limit, it was like, it wasn't just my mind, it was my body too. It was like, everything about me said, nope, you're done. You can't go any further. And so I guess to your point about resiliency, yes, I recovered eventually, but I learned I have to be careful with pushing myself too far in the wrong direction and recognizing the signs early that, wait a minute, I feel grumpy. Wait a minute, I don't wanna to go to work. What are those warning signs? Or I'm avoiding an important issue I need to talk about. For me, they're one set of warning signs. Everybody's gonna have something different, but I'm being really, really cautious about going too far down that road of, at some point, I'm going to hit my limit if I keep doing this, so I'm going to deal with it now. How do you work self-care into that? You had mentioned it earlier. I'm taking care of myself now. What does that look like for you? I think it looks like a couple of things. Number one, it has to do with my time. So I've always prioritized everything else before my own personal time. I had a problem with feeling guilty if I would take personal time. And for me, personal time is going for a long walk and listening to an audiobook. It's going for a drive. It usually is reading or audiobooks for me, but just kind of feeding my mind and that recharges my batteries. And I would just neglect doing that because I felt, well, there's something else I could do for someone else, right? So for me, self-care is, is less about the physical aspect of exercising and eating right, although I'm doing better. It's it's more about taking the time for me and not feeling apologetic about it and saying, if you want the best version of Paul, I need to be gone for half a day on Saturday, right? That's just what I need. And so 
I think that's the main thing for me is being able to carve out time for myself and not feel apologetic about it. That's great. So many people need to hear that. And I always say self-care is not a luxury. It's a discipline. And yeah. I like to equate it to like a basketball team, for example. Right. So I think I've used this analogy in one of my shows before, but you come on the court and you're getting ready to play basketball and you are going to let your team down if you haven't taken care of yourself, if you haven't practiced, if you haven't gotten your massage, if you haven't gotten enough sleep, if you haven't eaten well and you know all of those things to be a a functional part of a high performing team and we should all take that in our own personal lives whether it's within our companies our own teams within our families within our communities if we're not taking care of ourselves and showing up as the best versions then we are not helping all of those other you know people in our lives and and the people who rely on us to be their very best and i think a lot of people don't think of that they think oh it's selfish if i'm doing this for me or i'm not going to achieve what i want if i take some time and slow down whatever it is it's typically going to be ego driven and it is just such a false pre premise because you're right. If you don't take care of yourself, you can't show up as the very best version of yourself. And if you don't show up as the best version of yourself, all those people connected to you can't show up as the best versions of themselves. That's right. Yeah. In my case, another thing that I, that I learned that I, I would put in the category of self-care, which is I never realized it before, but I am actually really affected by my physical surroundings. If I'm in a messy room, I f my mind is messy, right? And so for my office, for example, I prioritized putting my office together the way I wanted to so that I would feel good. So I spent time and money on just decorating it, getting art. There's a picture behind me that's my favorite art piece because it's a robot who's an artist. And I feel like that's kind of the encapsulation of me. I'm half robot when it comes to technology and half artist. And so I want to surround myself visually with the things that make me feel at home and authentic and relaxed. And, and I would always think, well, that's a waste of money. That's a waste of time. All I need is a desk and a laptop. But it's not true in my case. And maybe it's true for other people, but it makes such a difference when I have my setup right. I've got the stand-up desk. I've got everything just right. And even though it took me a long time to get that, it really clears my mind so that, like you said, when I'm ready for the game, I'm my best self and I can I can show up with a clear mind and, and be ready to go. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Although looking around my office, you wouldn't be able to tell. But that outer order, inner calm is so critical. Yeah. And I'm teaching my son that. Uh, by making him clean up his room every day and uh, make his bed. And it's so funny, this is a little bit of a tangential story, but I'll bring it all together. So he was at a friend's house whose room was a mess and he told his little eight-year-old buddy, my mom would kill me if my room looked like that. And I was kind of giggling in the background, right? Because we go through our battles of him keeping his room cleaned up. And we talked about it afterwards. It was like, well, what did you think of his messy room? He said, mom, I just couldn't live like that. It would drive me crazy. I would not be able to sleep. I would be worried at school all day if my room was like that. And it really yeah. hit home with this whole outer order, inner calm. And boy, if I can teach him how important that is, 
um, at an early age and he can carry that into adulthood, I think it will really serve him well. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I grew up the same way too, right? I mean, I knew I had to clean my room. I had to keep everything clean. But as an adult, it was like things piled up. I deprioritized it. I got lazy. I didn't have discipline in that area. And I realized, wow, that that affected me. And I just didn't notice. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I have two questions about the people in your lives as they were going all uh, as this was all happening. How did your wife handle this? And how did your former business partner handle this? Yeah, great. Let's get right to the hard questions. My wife handled it with a lot of grace. And when I say handle it, what I mean is when we decided, meaning my wife and I decided that we were going to take this risk. As I mentioned, she didn't have a job. She stopped working after we had our first kid in 2001. If we were going to get money, it was up to me. And so now we're leaving a secure job that paid well, and we're risking it all for the chance that maybe something great, maybe failure. And she was very supportive of that from day one and said, look, if you're in it, I'm in it. Wherever you go, I'm right there with you. And to her credit, even when things got hard and even when I wasn't around much because I was traveling all the time and I was stressed out, she maintained that same level of support. Now, in retrospect and kind of talking to her about it, she was really putting on a brave face for me to be a supportive wife, but what I didn't appreciate because I was so distracted with my own focus was that she was really struggling. She was really on her own a lot. And she had a lot of health issues that were really challenging, that were pretty serious and pretty scary and some undiagnosed things that were always present. In the evening, I'd get back to my hotel and talk to her and it was, it was tough because I couldn't be there for her. And so she handled it well, but I think she was kind of in the same boat I was. It's like at some point you hit your limit, right? Where you're brave and, and you try to do the right thing for as long as you can, but at some point you need that helper. You need that person by your side to get you through stuff. And, and I wasn't there. I do regret that to some extent, but hindsight's twenty twenty, right? I, I didn't see it in the moment. I was kind of blinded by my own ambition, if you will. So she was great, but I think it, in the long run, we let that go too long and it, it was very hard. And your business partner? So also great, very understanding. We were colleagues before. That's why we started the business together. We had worked together at our last company and we had built up a team and we had spent a, a year of just traveling every week and we had hired a new team with very little experience and trained them up and took on way more than we should have, but found a way to be successful. And that's partly why we decided to start our own business, because we thought if we can handle a year that insane, we can handle anything, right? And so we had a lot of trust in each other and we had really good complementary strengths and we were friends, right? So when, when this kind of stuff started coming up and it was obvious that I wasn't doing well, she was really supportive and encouraged me to take time off. At the time when this was, I was starting to fall apart, I was on a really big project for a really big nonprofit and it was really critical and I had a lot of pressure on me. When that project ended, she said, just go take a month, just clear your mind, figure it out. You need to put yourself first. So also supportive. She also put my own health first 
and knew that that was the priority. And ultimately, when I did make the decision, no, I got to go, it's just not going to work. She understood that as well. And, and thank God she stayed on to, to run it without me. Not that I thought she wouldn't, but I'm really glad that it continued because I'm, I'm proud of what we built. We built a really great organization and it was built on values first before anything else. And so to see them continue to grow and continue to be successful and her to carry the torch that we both used to carry is actually really satisfying. What are you doing now? What's next? So now I, I work at a company called Financial Force and we make uh, ERP software that runs on the Salesforce platform. So companies that run Salesforce anyways, and they want to run more of their business on that, that's where we come in. Uh, I'm a director of professional services there. And so I'm still in consulting, which is great. It is kind of my first love career-wise, and it's really gratifying to be back in it, albeit in a slightly different capacity where I don't have the pressure of running the whole organization. I've just got my team and a bunch of projects. But I think this kind of new found focus, and I actually like the word mission better. My mission is not to advance my career anymore. I feel like I kind of hit the pinnacle with starting my own business and see it become successful. So, so I don't feel that drive anymore to advance and, and to become a CEO someday necessarily. I instead, now that I've spent a lot of time kind of getting back to my roots and getting more balanced and learning how to live in the moment and to clear my mind and, and be healthy, my mission has really become whatever I do. I, I really wanna just focus on every interaction with people that I have and to try to try to make them better for having interacted with me. And that's usually really small, right? It's usually a word of encouragement, a word of thanks. It's being very deliberate and conscious about recognizing people for the small and the big things. It's also like we talked about before, holding people accountable and coaching them and saying, you, you missed the mark here, you need to do better and I'll help you do better. But putting all of those things together, my focus is less on me now and I get a lot of satisfaction from coaching others up and seeing them progress and seeing them grow. So. The job is great. I love the company. I love the role. The work is, is great. But the part that gives me the most satisfaction is looking for those opportunities every day and in every call and every interaction to say, how can I make this person's experience better in some way? That is so incredibly inspiring. Uh, I hope that all the listeners uh, of this show can really feel that. And I think they will because you will be so much more successful in life. When you find joy out of building a team, helping others grow, really keeping that focus on you know the success of others rather than yourself, you can't help but be successful uh, uh, as you go along on that journey with them. But it is the most rewarding thing that you could possibly do. And so I find it really inspiring that you're in this really unique situation in your life where you can do that. You can you can be in a place where you can say, I my career isn't number one. The careers of my team are number one and my family is number one. That's really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a it's a really different thing yeah. from putting others first and being a people pleaser. Yeah. 
because my motivation before was I want to be liked yeah. and I want to keep the peace. And this is no, I, I want to, I want to lift people up, yeah. right? I want to make them better in some way. I want to teach them something, encourage them. And, and it's a totally different focus, even though sometimes it can kind of look the same from the outside. My motivation is less about me and how I'm perceived and it's more about others and how they're developing. Yeah, that's great. Super inspiring. All right, two final questions. Uh, first, the name of this podcast is Reflect Forward. What does Reflect Forward mean to you? The first time I heard it, I thought that's interesting because it seems like kind of a contradiction, right? It, it involves this idea of looking back and reflect and then also, and I, I was thinking about this not too long ago because I, I had a conversation with somebody on my team and, and they were asking me how to handle a difficult request from a customer. And they said, how do I respond to this? And my answer was, wisdom is usually, well, it's not usually, wisdom is understanding the dangers of extremes and finding the balance between those two. So let's talk about the extreme possibilities that you could do and the downsides of each. And then how do we find that place in the middle that accommodates both of those risks, right? So, so that's the way that I approach or, or try to think about difficult conversations or, or various kinds of challenges. And to me, that concept ties into reflect forward because in my life I have made the mistake of obsessing about the past and also obsessing about the future. And both of those have made me very, very unhappy. And I think if I apply that same kind of idea of reflect forward, but finding the balance between those two, it leads me to where I am now, which is finally being able to actually live in the present. Not that I don't look back or I don't look forward, but that for me, I have to balance those two and really be present and really look for those moments in each and every day and remind myself, hey, today I have an opportunity to do something good, to make a difference. And it's just about today right now. So to me, Reflect Forward is about balance between the past and the future. Beautifully said, thank you. All right, and finally, if there was one piece of advice you could give to leaders who are looking to be exceptional at what they do, what would you say? Two things, I would say know yourself and know others. And for me, that was the biggest difference is I thought I knew myself, I thought I was pretty self-aware and I was, but there is so much knowledge out there of how to understand yourself in different ways, in more detailed ways, in more practical and useful ways and understanding why you're different from others. And as a leader, it helps me have different expectations for different members of my team. Because not only do I understand myself, but when I understand how they work, I don't manage everybody the same way. I manage them individually based on how they work. But that, that's not just about being self-aware or being intelligent or, or having good emotional EQ. All those, all those things are good, but there's also a whole body of knowledge that, that makes that practical that allows you to put it to use. So I would say read as much as you can, learn as much as you can about, you know, kind of personality psychology and especially how it relates, you know, in the workplace. Great advice. All right. And how can people find you? Uh, I would say LinkedIn is the best way to find me. It's just Paul Reese. So I'm pretty easy to find. Great. 
Excellent. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Your story was amazing. I think it's going to resonate with so many people. And I know that it took uh, courage to share some of these things. So thanks for letting me ask the hard questions. Absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. All right. Okay. Hang tight, everybody. And I'll be right back. All right. I'm back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed meeting Paul. He's such a great person. And I am so grateful to have him in my life. After we stopped recording, I got emotional because I hadn't really shared with him how much of an impact he had on me when I was in those darkest moments, leaving Austin, trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do with my life. And I really appreciated his friendship and insight and his hard work. It was good to work next to him. Okay, so my question comes today from another CEO who is looking to build his brand, and he was wondering if he should hire somebody to build content for him on social media so that he can bring more awareness around some of his personal causes. So he asked me if I thought that that was something that he should do or how he should go about building out his brand. And... But I will tell you this, I think every leader, every CEO should be building his or her personal brand by sharing insights and stories and allowing people who follow you on social media to get to know you better, especially if you want to make a big impact in the world. And I think authentic posts matter tremendously. People don't just want to read things to learn. They want to connect with you as a person and understand your ideas and and thoughts on whatever particular topic that you are interested in or passionate about or are an expert in. So while I see the value of hiring somebody to do social media because it is time consuming, I also don't do that myself. I do all my own content. I create all my own content. I do all my own writing. And I believe that I'm the only person who can convey my own brand messaging and tone and the image that I want to create. And so I haven't hired anybody and maybe someday I will, but I want to be in tight control of the narrative and what I put out there because I want it to be truly personal and profound and impactful. And if someone else is doing it for me, then I don't know how it can really be that impactful. So. I think everybody should be posting things on LinkedIn, especially if you're a leader or professional. Put out your ideas. Don't just reshare things. Actually create content, even if it's just one post a week or every other week. It really does help people get to know you. It can build your own brand. It can build your company's brand. You can share ideas. So I encouraged him to do it himself, at least for a while until he got the tone down and really the messaging that he wanted and then consider, but it's incredibly worthwhile to do if you want to make a big impact. It's hard to have a big voice, a broad voice, if you're not using social media to be able to help build that platform. All right. I hope you all have a fantastic day and I look forward to hosting you on the next episode of Reflect Forward. <laughs>